A squid eating dough in a polyethylene bag. That's not the kind of thoughts I'd like to keep. A harmonious dance. Ratchet buds burst. You look dandy in the sky. To track by track presents Trout Mask Replica. My name is Joel Bacher, I'm guest hosting for Darren Husted. As we go track by track through Captain Beefheart and his magic band's incomparable 1969 double album, Trout Mask Replica. Today we are discussing the ominously titled Bill's Corpse, which is track eight, track two on side two of the album. Uh, this was recorded at Whitney Studios in Glendale, California, March of 1969, produced by Frank Zappa. Uh, personnel is Bill Harkelrode, a.k.a. Zuthorn Rollo, on guitar. Uh, Jeff Cotton, a.k.a. Antenna Jimmy Siemens, on guitar. Mark Boston, a.k.a. Rocket Morton, on bass. John French, a.k.a. Drumbo, on drums. And Don Van Vliet, a.k.a. Captain Beefheart, on vocals. Length of this track is an epic 1 minute and 48 seconds. Uh, my guest today is the Associate Professor of Music Theory, History, and Composition at Ithaca College in New York, and is the author of, amongst other works, uh, Form and Time in Trout Mask Replica, an article which is available in the Rutledge Companion to Popular Music Analysis, Expanding Approaches. Uh, it is my honor to welcome to the show Dr. Peter Silverman. Dr. Silverman, thanks so much for being here. Well, thanks for having me, Joel. It's a real pleasure to be on your show and to be able to talk about one of my favorite albums of all time. It has been a con- constant pleasure for me to do this show and be able to to talk to to various people about this this singular accomplishment in popular music. Um, so, I mean, given that you you are a professor of um, music theory at Ithaca College, I saw that you uh, studied at um, Oberlin Conservatory uh, in Ohio, uh, which incidentally is uh, my boss used to work at the library there. So, oh, okay. odd bit of synchronicity. Um, what? Clearly, music is is a through line, a passion in your life. What what was your first? What drew you into music? Oh, it's hard to say. I think just well, I come from a musical family. My grandfather was a professional musician. Uh, one of my cousins is a musician. Uh, my mother was very musical. Just hearing her sing around the house, hearing her play the piano. Uh, my parents always had records on. They always had their radio on. So just surrounded by music and wanting to enjoy it. It's sort of the family uh, family hobby. So that's what got me involved from a very young age. I started piano at six years old, and uh, my main instrument is French horn. Started at nine years old, which is also my my supervisor's instrument, oh, French okay. horn. So <laughs> uh, odd, odd bits of odd bits of synchronicity there. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, did you? Uh, where did you grow up? I grew up actually in the area I live in now. I'm currently in Ithaca, New York, and I grew up in Cortland, New York, which is not that far away. So upstate New York, sort of rural area. But my parents are both from Brooklyn, so I did spend a number of family vacations in the New York City area. So I'm oddly sort of a country guy, sort of a city guy, sort of mixed together. That's not a bad thing. That's yeah, not a bad yeah, thing. I grew up in the, the Midwest and now okay. live in Southern California, so I've got a little bit of that going on as well. Uh-huh. Uh, so what was your first exposure to the music of uh, Captain Beefheart and the Magic Band? And what kind of stuff had you been listening to prior to this experience? Well, I have a couple different stories, a couple different exposures. I'll start with the first one. Uh, the first time I ever heard Captain Beefheart at all was in 1980, and that really dates me. But he and the band were the musical guests on Saturday Night Live, uh, believe it or not. And I was maybe 15 or 16, and I remember hearing this band. It was just the weirdest thing I ever heard. They were playing, um, it uh, did two songs. They did Hothead and Ashtray Heart, which are both on Dock at the Radar Station. And it was music unlike anything I'd ever heard before in my life. Uh, Beefheart just seemed very creepy and sinister. And it was just sort of scary, but it was really, really different. Um, before then, since I lived in a small town, we only had one radio station. I heard um, primarily top 40 music. Uh, I knew all the greatest hits of you know John Denver, Barry Manilow. And I always tell people I grew up in the 70s, a decade of bad music. <laughs> but um, I heard a lot of just very, very sort of, sort of mundane, average pop. 
And getting that I was uh, getting more and more into the French horn, I was also listening to some classical music as well so that I could hear other people play that instrument because the French horn, of course, is a classical music instrument. So this was totally beyond my experience. I was completely just freaked out by this whole thing. And um, I admit I did not rush out and buy an album. It was just sort of scary. But I, I kind of filed that away in my head. And about 10 years later, I was living in Boston. By that point, I was attempting to be a professional musician, not very successful. But I hung out with a bunch of guys who were into sort of the avant-garde of classical music. A couple of those guys were composers. They did electronic, sort of strange, weird electronic sounds. Mm -hmm. And one of them, um, my good friend Phil Van Oost, who's a wonderful tuba player and composer, he said to me one day, you know, I bet you'd like this Captain Beefheart guy. You ought to go buy this recording Trout Mask replica. So, and Phil was a guy I trusted. So I went and got the album and put it on. And my first thought was, I go, what, what a mess. This is horrible. But as I listened to it more and more, I realized how brilliant it was. And what struck me is it took the best of kind of both worlds. It took some of the rock music feel, the drums, guitars, whatever, um, but it combined it with some very sophisticated avant-garde classical music stuff. And that's what really got me. It sort of combined the music that I grew up with along with some of the more recent interest I had as an adult who was a performer and very interested in the, sort of the, the margins of the classical world. So by the time you heard Trout Mask Replica, you had already shifted into, you had heard some contemporary classical music and were uh, comfortable in that, that realm of, of dissonance and, and unusual structures. Yeah, that didn't bother me. It was just a surprise that it happened in what, what sounded to me like more like a, a rock or blues context. I didn't associate those two things as being things you could ever put together. And that's what was so exciting was that it seemed like uh, Beefheart took the best of a couple different worlds and just kind of threw them together in this unusual stew that was unlike anything I'd ever heard before. Uh, I have seen the SNL performances that you're that you're referring to of a hothead and Ashtray okay. Hart, and that that is it, it. The band was really on fire that night. Those are some impressive live performances, and I can absolutely see how seeing seeing him on television after having had no exposure to very little, but um, the the worst of 70s AM rock uh, would be rather alarming. Uh, there's a great moment near the end of Ashtray Hart yeah. when he he pushes the microphone into the bell of his uh, soprano saxophone and just kind of sprays the audience with some atonal sax. After, and removing it afterwards, the mic falls to the floor and a, a, a both metaphorical and literal mic drop of of you know, well, what'd you think of that? And you can, t you can tell there's a moment of, there's a moment of shocked <laughs> silence from the audience as, as the band completes, completes there. But yeah. if, unfortunately, I don't think you can find those online. They, uh, NBC takes stuff from SNL down pretty quickly, but if anyone gets a chance to see those performances, they are, they are pretty fantastic. Uh, so in the, actually you can get the audio on YouTube. So. The audio is on YouTube. I just found it recently. I, there's no video. With oh, okay. So they've they've cut it. Well, that's it's unfortunate that they've cut out the video, but they are great incendiary performances of of two of his uh, two of his the best uh, of his later work. Um, uh, Duck the Radio Station is is one of the most solid of of his late period albums, and those two tracks are 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 very strong. Uh, so in the uh, in the article that you wrote, the uh, form and time and trout mask replica, you um you delve pretty deeply into the the elements uh, within Van Vliet and the Magic Band's music that have uh, ties, whether conscious or unconscious, to contemporary classical, um, specifically the use of uh, what's called um, moment form. Would you be willing to, to expand a little on that? Sure. This is a, a concept that was developed by a composer named Karlheinz Stockhausen, who was a German composer, died, I think, around 2007. But his de big decade was like the, the 60s, 50s and 60s, actually. He's the most active. But he was looking at his music and early music as well, in which the uh, piece of music consists of just a series of unrelated sections. So there's one section, goes on, abrupt stop, goes on to a totally different section, abrupt change, totally different section, abrupt change, totally different section, etc. So it's just like a sausage. You have a link of something, a link of something else, link of something else. And these sections of the piece are just totally unrelated to each other. Uh, the only connection they have is really just before and after. And that's very different from a lot of different types of music in which we expect sort of a narrative arc from the beginning all the way to the end instead of these little unconnected blocks. But uh, Stockhausen used that in a number of his own compositions 
But the earlier composer he found that in the music of is Igor Stravinsky, who was active from maybe 1910 to around 1965 or so. Uh, the best example is a piece by Stravinsky called Symphonies of Wind Instruments that people always mention as the sort of paradigmatic uh, moment form composition. But each of these unrelated sections is called a moment, and a piece is just a succession of moments that don't really add up to anything. It's just one thing followed by something else. So in lieu of, of typical, of, of a more traditional classical construction, which would be like theme and development of the theme and so forth, it is, it's these kind of modular little cells that... Can they can they seemingly kind of go in any order? Like, is there there's no necessary or immediately obvious logic to to how they are constructed? That's absolutely right. Often you could just rearrange them and it wouldn't make any difference at all. Uh, particularly in the music of Stockhausen, Stockhausen used a lot of electronic effects. So you would just hear one moment could be like a vacuum cleaner type sound. Next moment could be a percussion sound, or you might have I don't know a high pitch sort of a whine. They're not even not even musical sounds in his his music. Well, I know that Van Vliet claimed a fondness for Stravinsky, and and Zappa certainly was was uh, influenced by Stravinsky. So the the possibility of some conscious uh, appropriation of that style is is there, and uh, it's also possible that it's it's simply a byproduct of the unusual method of construction of of the songs of Van Vliet banging away on the piano or whistling things to the band and them taking these little fragments of music and combining them into, into a longer whole. Uh, the, um, the track that we're discussing today, Bill's Corpse, which is a grand total of one minute and 48 seconds. Uh, in your article, you, you break down the, the uh, melodic units, the cells, as you call them in this track and, and indicate that I, I believe there's 10 of them in a, to- in a, in a one minute and 48 second song? I actually found 11 because I consider the last area, which is just the voice to be the 11th section. That seems like a pretty, uh, a pretty complicated structure for an extremely short pop song or, you know, what in theory would be a pop song. That's absolutely right. Uh, but keep in mind, a lot of these little cells are very, very short. So if you want to make a piece out of them, you got to have a lot of different ones. Otherwise they're even shorter than a minute and a half. But yeah, it's a lot of things happening in a very, very small package. Yeah, absolutely. I know uh, in in other episodes of this and and with other people I've talked to, we've discussed that for for many bands, you know, a single riff on this album would have produced enough material for you know the lion's share of an entire song. Whereas on on Trout Mask Replica, it's there. You get maybe two or three repetitions of it, and then it's on to the next thing. And it's it's unusual on this album for a a measure to be repeated relatively few of the songs have anything approximating a verse chorus verse type structure where a previously established part will then come back in again generally it it moves on to something unrelated which then moves on to something unrelated and then by the time you get to the end you have you have not looped around to the beginning again it's songs that have repeated structures are rare enough on this album that they're worthy of note like El Guru or Moonlight on Vermont. That's right. And I, I wonder if this sort of structure is just the result of, of Beefheart's inability to play anything, that we know that he would fool around on the piano until something sounded right. They didn't have John French write it down. But once it was he was done with it, he was just lost. He didn't know the names of the notes. He couldn't put his fingers back on the same place. So any idea, any attempt to repeat something was just bound to fail. He just couldn't reproduce that, that magic little sound ever again. Um, also, this idea of, of in a classical piece, you would find development. This little melody might uh, have a little variation. Maybe there would be one note change. Maybe it would come back again. Um, but that never happens here for the same reason. That you could only play that one little riff. He couldn't ever change a note. If he did, he would just lose it. So things are very, 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 um, uh, it's always the same because you really couldn't do anything else on the piano. Yeah, French has has commented or commented in his book on the, you know, when when Don would have something that he liked, you know, he'd have to have French come over and transcribe it immediately because he quite literally could not lift his hands up off the keyboard um, to and then be able to play it again. Like he had to keep his hands in exactly the same spot to be able to remember what he was playing and have it be something that could be transcribed. And the moments of polytonality or what sound like atonality on on this album are, in French's words, sometimes simply a matter of Don 
you know, lifting up his hands, smoking a cigarette, and then putting his hands back down again in a completely different place, and not ha- being particularly concerned with the the music, um, uh, being in the same key as the the last bit of it that he that he had written. Are you familiar with? Are, have any other composers in the in your sphere of knowledge ever worked in a style along this these lines of constructing something from these tiny little fragments um, on instruments that they have dubious understanding of? That's a great question. Um, I think in the classical world, not really. We, we do know that Stravinsky, for instance, composed at the piano. He would just play stuff, let his fingers wander around, and then eventually work out some notation. But as far as the classical world, I don't know of examples. There must be somewhere um, I do think about that a lot in the jazz world. Ornette Coleman is a great example, someone also that, that Beefheart knew a lot about. Uh, he was a saxophone player, but later on in life, I think he played uh, violin and trumpet without really knowing how either one of those instruments worked. He just kind of made noises, and that seemed to work for him. So maybe it's more common in the jazz world than the classical world or even even in the rock world. Great yeah, or, Ornette's violin playing is... is uh, Ornette's violin playing it puts me in the mind of... I feel like that is is most comparable in some ways to to Van Vliet's saxophone playing in that neither one of them is really playing the instrument the way it was intended to be played. Uh, you know, Ornette is he plays the violin kind of like a percussion instrument and Van Vliet played the saxophone more or less like something that he would simply push air through and see what came out the other side. There wasn't a great deal of prior planning involved in, or or ability ability to repeat what he was doing um uh, there's uh, coleman certainly came from a place of i think a greater depth of musical understanding but the the same um same certain amount of joyousness in just being able to make a sound come out of something whether that sound is what it was intended to produce or not yeah what's kind of cool about that is you can get sounds that people who know the instrument never think of making so people are creating something new out of just not having any preconceived ideas about what the instrument should sound like. Absolutely. I was just watching a thing on um, prepared guitar the other day, and I was watching the great Fred Frith give a little talk about the various the various different methods that he uses to abuse and torture his guitars to get un- bizarre sounds out of them from dropping ball bearings on them from a great height or, or um, uh, running string and like an actual actual twine through the strings or brushing them with a paintbrush just the these series of very strange extended techniques which to a novice would certainly look like this guy has no idea how to play the guitar and he's simply battering it with these different things to create to get these unearthly sounds out of it in frith's case of course he he absolutely knows what he's doing and is a, a immensely gifted guitarist and and composer but uh I believe I probably made similar sounds when I got my first electric guitar out of sheer, out of having absolutely no idea what I was doing. You know, as you mentioned, it's this, this joy of discovery. It's sometimes, even for people with a lot of musical training, it's nice to go back and be a beginner, just to have this thrill of, hey, here's something new. I didn't know how to do this, and now I'm just discovering something different. So it can be kind of cool just to try something you don't know how to play and see what happens. Absolutely, yeah. It, it is. It can be great fun to, to play around, particularly on something where the, even the method by which it produces sound is kind of an alien idea to, to you like having screwed around on guitar and bass, you know, stringed instruments. I have a general idea how to get a sound out of a stringed instrument, but handed a woodwind, I haven't the foggiest. And so end up producing sounds that I'm sure would drive an actual woodwind player to despair, but, uh, are, can be entertaining for me at least in, at least in the short term. Yeah, I find that same sense of play actually with with Van Vliet's voice, that there are so many different voices coming from the same person, so many different vocal qualities. Um, and obviously he, he knew how to sing. He wasn't just discovering his voice, but just this idea of what, what can this vocal instrument do? How many different ways can I make it sound? Even in Bill's Corpse, there are three different vocal qualities, three different vocal timbres that make the song really very interesting. You think of it as maybe a different voice for every character or every every part of the story in this song. Yeah, when when people discuss Van Vliet's voice, the 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 general you know the the reference point is Howard Wolf usually when when people are discussing his voice. But he did have a very flexible and an, 
a remarkable range and a, a real flexibility of expression in his voice. Um, one of my guests, I think it was Samuel Andreev, commented that it, on each song he is kind of singing, he's creating a character for the track and singing in a different, in a slightly different register or a different timbre and occasionally slipping around in them within the song. Um, as you point out, he's he starts off in kind of a, a, a rather agitated sounding shout at the beginning of Bill's Corpse. Uh, it slips down into his um, growlier, more, more wolf-esque range at a certain point. And on the final section where it, it ends with that, the guitar chord in his brief a cappella recitation of the last two lines, it's more of a kind of straight uh, reciting of a poetry poetry recital kind of voice, not entirely outside of what he's doing on on old fart at play. And uh, one of the things that you talked about in your article was the different sense the, the sense of spatial dislocation that you get on this album from the different recording environments. That it's it's there's nothing really. Uh, the sense of place jumps around from track to track without you being able to give you any real uh, boundary markers of where you are, partially because of how things have been recorded in so many different places and with different recording equipment. That's right. To me, I I feel like since these were recorded all in different places, they must have all been recorded in different times. And I wouldn't necessarily know that from maybe an entirely studio produced album where every recording kind of sounds the same. We know, of course, they were recorded different times in a studio album, but there's no oral marker of those different times. Whereas here there are. Obviously, Zappa couldn't have been in the house and the garden and the studio all at the same time. So that for me is part of the fun. It's disorienting, but in kind of a cool way. And I'll just mention the story that I'm sure this has come up maybe in other podcasts that you made, but the original idea that Zappa had was to record uh, Beefheart in his natural environment. And Zappa referred to this as something like an ethnic field recording Mm -hmm. that he would kind of show here's Beefheart, where Beefheart lives and how Beefheart interacts with other people with him, et cetera. So that's why some of the tracks are recorded in the house. It was supposed to capture the environment that Beefheart and the band were living in. And after a few of those recordings, Beefheart got mad at Zappa and said, look, I want a real studio recording. So the rest of it was done in the studio. But the art here is Zappa mixing those different different sorts of recordings together. So as a listener, you're kind of brought back and forth as you hear studio house, studio house, garden, whatever, as the album progresses. Yeah, one thing that that has been, we've discussed a few times, I've discussed a few times with different guests on the show, is the degree to which this album is sequenced seemingly to demonstrate the maximum amount of variety that you receive on on the tracks on on this album the 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 log line for trout mask replica is that it's this very difficult harsh record but there are a tremendous there's a tremendous variety of music on display here and just on the first side of the album you're you're kicked off with frownland which is kind of a abrasive and and uh, initially kind of alarming sounding track but then you go into this acapella track dust blows forward and the dust blows back which is recorded in a completely with a completely different sound because he's recording it on a home audio cassette recorder of some kind then after that from this kind of and the lyrically that track is like this kind of idyllic pastoral getting away from the city into the country then you're thrust into Dachau blues which is the darkest song on the album and again these very dissonant clanging guitars and then it goes into Ella Guru, which is as close as this album gets to like kind of a sunny pop song and, you know, you know, pop in, in big quote marks when it comes to Captain Beefheart. Uh, so it, it does feel like it's this whole album has been set up to it, it is disorienting, but it's also like, look at this cornucopia of creativity that came out of these these guys in this place and time. Look, look at how much music and so many different styles and so many different moods and and types uh, is is on here and just the whole fact that it's a double album that it's you know 28 short songs uh, demonstrating just this font of, of creativity that's right it's really an amazing variety of things even um, things you would never expect uh, for instance um, orange claw hammer is sort of a sea chant mm-hmm. 
And when I first heard that, I thought, what, what is this doing here? It doesn't fit with anything else, but it's something else that, that B-Fart knows how to do. Um, Bill's Corpse in particular is sandwiched between a couple of songs that at least the, the end of the previous song, Pachuco Cadaver, and the beginning of the next song, Sweet Sweet Bulbs, are very groovy, sort of groove oriented. So you're kind of lulled into this kind of very happy groove and suddenly Bill's Corpse comes in and when it's done, you go back into the groove again. So it's interesting what uh, uh, Zappa chose to sandwich some of the more interesting songs with things that were maybe more easier on the ear before and afterwards. Well, in, in terms of, of moment composition, I mean, Zappa as, as a composer in his own right was certainly, certainly delighted in unexpected juxtaposition. I mean the 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 Zappa music that that I'm familiar with, he he really seemed to enjoy like s- sudden jarring tape splices or a band cutting from one kind of music to another in with very little uh very little warning or very little uh, sense of preparing you for what was coming. So he and he and Van Vliet, as much as they as they fought, are probably to some degree thinking alike in that respect that each individual track is kind of filled with discontinuities and then the album as a whole is this discontinuous heterogeneous entity i'm probably mispronouncing heterogeneous but i'm 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 going to just go for it <laughs> no, I, I can't help you there so okay. <laughs> i don't know how to pronounce it either. fair enough but um <laughs> Yeah, but um, yeah, I think that uh, very similar styles as compositions in, in some cases. I know that uh, Zappa goes one step farther. Zappa occasionally will, will have a collage where he just starts piling up unrelated things on top of each other, whereas Bifar doesn't, to my knowledge, do that. Once he sets something up, it's kind of steady until the next big change, where Zappa just loads, kind of loads everything together. Yeah, Zappa would do the um, record uh, overdubbing one track with something else that was from some completely unrelated set of circumstances, like taking a guitar solo from one piece and and layering it over a completely different instrumental backing than it originally went with. And he had some term for that that escapes my, my memory. Um, but you get a little of that on, on the blimp on this album with Jeff Cotton's uh, voice kind of laid atop the, the mother's um, playing an, an unrelated piece and they they kind of weave in and out of having any sort of correspondence with each other um yeah, the, the term by the way for zappa's technique is another word i don't know how to pronounce i think it's xenochrony thank uh, you X-E-N-O that's it yes c-h-r-o-n-y so it means something like alien time xeno meaning you know foreign or alien but uh, you know, the blimp is a great example where um a lot of things are happening at the same time you have uh, I think it's um, uh, who is the singer on that one? It's uh, Jeff, Jeff Cotton, Cotton yeah. is, is, is narrating over the phone. Uh, Beefheart is in the background playing the saxophone over the phone. You've got uh, this little snippet from the mother's invention of invention. You have studio noise, Zappa talking to people, saying, "Okay, get ready, go," etc. And there's other things happening. I think there's some other stuff happening in the studio, some instrumental things as well. So everything very, very kind of piled up together. And that's somewhat unusual. That shows a lot more of Zappa's handiwork, really, than, than uh, Van Vliet's in that one particular case on this album. Agreed, yeah. And the fact that the band that is playing is actually the Mothers rather than the Magic Band, I think, kind of kind of seals that, that it, it feels, that juxtaposition of elements feels very, very much Zappa's uh, contribution. Whereas, of course, Cotton, Cotton's delivery, uh, the poem and Cotton's delivery of it is is very much uh, Van Vliet's. It's as close as we get to an actual kind of musical collaboration between the two on this on this album. Um, so on, on Bill's Corpse, you you mentioned as well that the in addition to the eleven cells, the uh, actually being able to determine a tonal center on many of these cells is is challenging. You've got it kind of seems to faint at one i think you said it's it starts off and it seems like it is in a aeolian which is the if i'm remembering music correctly is the natural minor of of c major um and then uh That's but right. but there's other like mom, moments after that notes are introduced that are completely outside of that key center that's right. At the beginning, actually, the first couple of, of little, well, the first little moment, the first little cell kind of sounds like maybe a C major 
but the bass is playing a D. So those don't those two ideas don't really line up. Um, sounds kind of polytonal. I know Samuel Andreev says in his analyses that B flat often will choose two keys and have them played at once. That's a good example at the beginning. Later on, it settles down into really A minor, so natural uh, relative minor of C major. C and A are keys that often are found together. So that's not all that surprising. But as the song progresses, he starts adding more notes that aren't part of either key. We get a B flat, you get a C sharp, you get an F sharp, you get a D sharp, and this whole key structure that begins the song just sort of breaks down. And I, I have not been able to find any sort of logic as to why that happens. That could be, again, be an artifact of just Van Vliet playing different things on the piano and throwing them together. Um, and it ends up on a C sharp major chord, which has nothing to do with anything earlier in the song, except for something that I, I found recently getting prepared for this podcast, that there's only a couple places where, where Van Vliet actually sings. A lot of the song is narration. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the word together, the only way they ever get together, he does actually end that little phrase on a C sharp and the next time, it's not the way I like, to, like it to get together. He ends that phrase on a C sharp as well. And then C sharp comes back at the end of the song as the last chord. So I'm, I'm not sure that that's uh, deliberate. It could be certainly an accident. But I'm wondering if there's some sort of deep structure that I just couldn't figure out in there somehow. But definitely, if you look at for keys, it's really very frustrating and confusing. It's just not really, the song doesn't really work that way. It's it's pretty interesting that he is there is a foreshadowing of that last chord in the um, I've got the lyrics here now the the not the way I'd like it to get together not the kind of thoughts I'd like to keep that that he's ending as as you you point out on a C sharp on on those lines and then one of my favorite moments on this entire album is that last chord because and I meant to check which guitarist is playing it before the podcast. And I forgot, I think it's Harkle road. Um, but you can hear their fingers slightly fumbling on the frets before they hit the, hit the chord as though they were like, they may have been playing on some completely different register on the instrument had to slide down to that chord very quickly. And it just takes like a fraction of a second for them to get their fingers in the right place to nail that last C sharp major chord. And I, I don't, think it i mean it might have been intentional obviously i wasn't there but the the mo it it humanizes this band that in some ways can seem so otherworldly in their ability to pull together these disparate keys and tempos and time signatures that you just hear this little minute of moment of what sounds like someone's fingers squeaking on the strings a bit as they're getting getting into position yeah that chord is such a surprise it comes out of nowhere and to me it sounds almost like a question I can imagine the guitarist playing that, looking over at Van Vliet and saying, was that right? Mm-hmm. Did I do this right? It's almost like a tentative little sound to end the song. It, it is. And I, I think it's, I mean, there, there's always the element too on, on here. And you, this is an, another thing you bring up in your article that the mu- changes in the music and the changes in the lyrics that he is singing or reciting very rarely correspond. Like it, it's not, like a verse chorus verse where you know there's a clear delineation to the end of a stanza and then the music changes as you're going into the chorus it it all kind of tends to wander over each other and some of that is that van vliet did not rehearse with the band and was coming up with deciding what lyrics to go with any particular piece of music more or less shortly before he recorded the vocals from from my understanding on at least some of the tracks not all of them uh but Bill's Corpse uh, is a succession of of pretty um, morbid and apocalyptic images with the, uh, the, the last of the ashes is referenced in the very first line. You have this female figure hideously looking back at what once was beautiful, ragged hair shine in red, white and blue, which, you know, one can pretty easily draw the associations there. And the children screaming, why surely, madam, you must be dreaming. And the goldfish in the bowl lay upside down, bloating, full in the sky, and the plains were bleached white with skeletons. So it's this very bleak landscape. But then you get this final major chord that is, as you point out, in almost entirely a different key than everything else. And he, it's this kind of plea to, oh, lady, look up in time. Oh, lady, look out of love. And you should have us all. Oh, you should have us fall. So it's this this in this last moment, it's this kind of plea to this unknown 
female figure accompanied by this, as you say, tentative and questioning and kind of hopeful little guitar chord. Um, and then right after that, you're immediately into the, the, the rather delicate back and forth of the guitars on, on sweet, sweet bulbs. Yeah, that's a good point. I never really thought of it that way. It does have sort of a, a more hopeful ending, uh, both in the lyrics and in the music. Um, yeah, I, I'm kind of puzzled over the lyrics myself. I'm not really sure what this song is about. All I can think of is 1969s Vietnam era, this post-apocalyptic sort of topic could be something war-related. I don't really know, but um, there's also a lot of nature imagery in this as well. The middle section about the goldfish and the, uh, you know, the animal, various species grouped together according to their past beliefs. Probably my favorite lyric on the entire album. Um, I don't know what that means, but it's, it's brilliant. But um, yeah, definitely, I think this is one of the very few cases where the, the, the lyrics and the music, at least at the very end, line up and help tell the story. Often they're just completely unrelated as if uh, they were written differently and written at different times and just kind of thrown together at the last minute. Yeah, I, I, I've always loved that line as well. The various species grouped together according to their past beliefs. It, it, it is, and yeah, I'm not sure precisely what the, the literal meaning of that is, although this, the whole song kind of has this slight post-apocalyptic vibe, as you say, war-torn vibe. Um, the species grouping together according to their past beliefs the only way they ever all got together was not in love but shameful grief so there's this suggestion of you know something some event that has has rendered the world ashen and and skeletal and the last bands of people kind of coming together and and you know trying to form some kind of community based on on previous associations um the what the band has to say about the lyrics is kind of hilarious because the Harkle Road, Bill Harkle Road states that it's about him, um, that it was, in his words, renamed for his morose mood at the time. Um, he says, I think he was trying to say, you're acting like you're dead. Well, a lot of the time I felt like I was dead, um, which I imagine is a, a great deal due to the pretty horrific living and working environments in the Trout House. Uh, French also says that it's named for for. Uh, Bill Harkle wrote and that it it has to do with his skeletal appearance that he was 120 pounds and six foot four uh, and in French's words looks like a hat stand when he first joined the band um, uh, Mike Barnes indicates that it may well have been uh, in in tribute to a, an actual goldfish that Van Vliet owned named Bill that uh, in Barnes's words died after his enthusiastic young owner overfed him which these are all like kind of charmingly banal um, possible explanations for these, these uh, apocalyptic lyrics that this vision of a war torn, uh, you know, Mad Max esque uh, post-apocalypse was due to his dead goldfish is, is, is both funny and kind of rather sweet. Yeah, I agree. And it's interesting that out of this whole song, that particular image became the title. Because when I hear this, I think more of the lady at the beginning, the lady at the end. That for me is the maybe the more long-lasting image. But she doesn't make an appearance in the title at all. It's named after this little goldfish. So he's very, very cute in a way. It is. It. it I think in some way, if that is the origin of, of the title, that ties back to his his well-established love of animals and the the um, plethora of animal imagery that that is on virtually every track on this album. Um, Eric Goodis in his All About Jazz article has this fantastic list of every animal that's named on this album, which is just this massive paragraph of different creatures because this album is just crawling with different animals and bugs and and critters of all sizes and shapes. Uh, so in yeah, the... Come, I'm sorry, go ahead. Okay, I'm just going to say that comes out of um, uh, Van Vliet's earlier life. As a child, he was a child prodigy sculptor. Mm -hmm. And his sculptures were mostly of animals. So it's this theme that, and also his paintings later on in life have a lot of animals in them as well. So it's this theme that runs through various uh, types of arts that he was involved with. Yeah, there's a rather sweet photo of him as as a very, as a single digit young man holding a, a elephant that he's sculpted, that he's won an award for at some event. I'll have to see if I can include that in the in the episode data along with this. But yeah, his his... Um, fascination with the animal and the natural world began 
early on and and was a a through line throughout his life and his uh and his art uh so i i have to ask as given that you were a uh a professor at ithaca college do you in the courses that you teach do you ever expose your students to Van Vliet's music? Uh, I've always wanted to, and I never have. And I feel I feel terrible about that. But uh, it doesn't really fit into what I teach. And I, I really regret that. But um, I do teach some Stravinsky. And one of these days, I have to say, well, look, here's uh, some Stravinsky. Here's something that's much more modern that does some of the same things. But uh, yet, yet it has yet to happen. Uh, I did give a talk about this article that I wrote at my college. And I got, you know, an audience maybe 20 or 30. So I have uh, presented it around there, but not as part of a class. Well, twenty or thirty is a pretty good, pretty good audience for a fairly, fairly niche subject. Um, I, I would presume that were were most of those people were they people who were pr- familiar with Van Vliet's work prior, or were they simply coming to see a lecture and and were uh, perhaps a bit surprised by what the the material was? Well, some of each. We had a mixture of adults, some people from the college, some people from town, and students. And the students came because either they knew me or they enjoyed the poster. We made up a big poster with the, the cover of Trout Mask Replica on it. So I think the fish head kind of lured some people in. And they seemed a little, um, the students seemed, they, they enjoyed the talk, but they seemed a little uh, surprised. They weren't quite sure, quite sure what to make of the music. Uh, the more adult people often came because they, they knew the repertoire, they loved it, and they wanted to hear more. I had some really wonderful conversations with some of the, the older people in the audience who've known this music as long as I have. Yeah, Beefheart pan- fans are a, a small but passionate bunch, and when we have an opportunity to to speak with each other, the conversations can can get uh can get pretty lengthy. It, it has been. I've had the opportunity to talk to a couple of people on this show who are are to me they're very young people. I'm I'm in my early forties, and so these are people in their twenties. And and if they're you know since they're appearing on the show, they are familiar with Van Fleet and they enjoy the music. Uh, I did actually kind of want to talk to someone who like was hearing this album for the first time and couldn't couldn't stand it, but I haven't had anyone actually take the bait on accepting that offer yet. Um, just because I think it would be interesting to get the, the perspective of of someone who just finds the whole thing repellent. But the the younger people that I've spoken to, it, it's fascinating to me the the frames of reference that they have and the points at which they will the things that they find to latch onto and talk about uh, on this record, you know, people coming to it um, who came to it in the, in the 1960s, you know, they were hearing it from the perspective of they had, there was blues rock and psychedelia. And then here, if you hear it in the eighties, you're maybe familiar with punk and post-punk. And so there's, there's some elements of that. And then the, you know, people in their twenties now, their frames of reference are are completely different than anything that I'm familiar with, and so the associations that they would come up with for uh, for the music on this album, I, I just find endlessly fascinating because they like it, but the the way that they're experiencing it is is so different than the way that that I experienced it. I I I love to hear that. I thought it was just fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. I I'd love to do that experiment too. Find someone, a younger person, and see what they think of this. Um, the students I talked with didn't really provide any references. They just said, wow, this is, this is kind of odd. But uh, so much has happened since 69. And I wonder if, if this is less shocking for a, a younger person than it was for me or for someone who got the album when it came out in the 60s. I really don't know, but it'd be interesting to find out about that. That, that was one of the questions that, that prompted me to, to really want to work on this, this project was to discuss with people is this album still a difficult listening experience? And based on the younger people that, that I've spoken with, they do find, they find it challenging. Um, I, one of them I'm going to misquote, but it was something along the lines of you have to be kind of a masochist to like this album, which I thought was kind of funny. Um, (laughs) So yeah, it's, it's still, it still can shock and, and be challenging, but yeah, the music has, there has been so much and so much that is, you know, would have sounded extremely strange and abrasive to a listener from 1969. It, it does feel like it feels like maybe some of the shock of this album has has worn off that it doesn't feel quite as transgressive, but it's still as um, 
it, it still is captivating and exciting and alien. Um, I will also mention for a modern listener, recording technology is so much better now than it was in 69 that I think, I wonder if some people's objection nowadays might be just to the, the poor recording quality, the poor mixing, which we were used to. Someone might, I'm in my mid 50s, so I remember making mixtapes, you know, bad cassette recordings, crappy bootlegs, whatever. Uh, but a younger person, everything's digital, everything sounds crisp. So I'm wondering if just some of the, 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 the bad recording, at least bad by modern standards, might be off-putting for a younger person. That's entirely possible. I, I, I get the feeling some of it was sort of off-putting to the band because many of them have complained about the mix and that they <laughs> are essentially, there are sections where they're basically inaudible behind Van Fleet's 600-pound gorilla of a singing voice. Well, yeah, I guess even had this been recorded in a pristine way, there's still this dominating, uh, you know, Van Vliet's voice is so big and so loud and so present that it does dominate much more than many other singers would. And I believe a lot of the the somewhat eccentric mix choices on this album were, were quite possibly at Van Vliet's insistence. I know Zappa has said, or had said, I should use past tense, he's unfortunately no longer with us, that um, basically you could not tell Van Vliet anything about this is how things are supposed to sound this is how something should be and so zappa just kind of resigned himself to essentially doing whatever van vliet wanted on the record uh, along the lines of if he said something like if i was going to let him produce this unique statement i just needed to do what he asked me to do and not try to convince him that it you know it was perhaps not the best choice in terms of listenability and sure that makes sense you can tell that he just wasn't really as aware of the band. He just kind of did his thing and over whatever else happened in the studio at the time. So it certainly does sound that way. So in addition to your work uh, as an instructor and, and as a writer in music theory, do you, do you compose as well? Uh, not much. I have occasionally written music, uh, not recently, but every once in a while I, I do something. Um, it's hard to find the time. I'm employed full-time doing something else. And oddly enough, I don't, I'm teaching music so much, I don't have time for music much in my, in my, my personal life. Oh, I, I can relate to that. I, I work as a library technician and I have almost no time to read. So I I feel your pain. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I was curious if in your own musical endeavors, if you felt that Van Vliet was in any way an influence. Not really. I've thought about trying to imitate this style. I've never really done so. So my my own music, what little I've written is, is a little more user-friendly. That's just somehow how things come out of me, even though I don't listen to music like that all that much. But um, I, I don't think it would be easy to claim him as an influence because he's just so, so sui generis. There's no one else like this. I don't think I could imitate Beefheart even if I tried. It's just, it's just so hard to, to do what he did. Um, this combination of just crazy genius and incompetence combined <laughs> is very hard to reproduce. Uh, particularly if you don't have a band who's willing to rehearse 16-hour days to to piece together this music that you've <laughs> that you've put together. I, I have occasionally thought in doing this project, and this is going to sound to to listeners, this is probably going to sound like I'm making fun of Don Van Vliet. I'm not. I, I do not intend that in any way, but the the nature of the recording that he's you know an untutored pianist and then constructing these pieces from the bits that he would feel out on the piano. I, I've occasionally thought, I don't know if you've ever had the experience of hearing a cat get onto a piano keyboard and just kind of bang, you know, run around the key. I've, yes, I've yeah. occasionally thought that it might be kind of interesting to take a bunch of recordings of different cats on different pianos and try and see if, and construct a song off the riffs produced by cats as they, you know, traipse across a piano keyboard this is like uh the, you know the story about the, the monkeys with typewriters would eventually produce the works of shakespeare well exactly cats on the keyboard would make uh trot mask ruffle again and, give, give it enough time an infinite number of cats on an infinite number of pianos would produce trout mask replica <laughs> that's right that's right well, uh, at the end of every uh, episode that Darren hosts, he rates the track. Um, I say on each episode of the podcast, I rate every track on this album five out of five because I believe you can't really, you can't really accurately compare them to anything, which means rating it is is kind of silly. I, I there are some that I like more than others, certainly, but they're all these just incomparable pieces of of work. 
Um, if you would like to rate the track out of five, you are, are more than welcome to. And if you have anything else you'd like to say about the track or anything you want to promote or a signal boost, uh, Dr. Silberman, the floor is yours. Thanks. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm set with what I want to want to promote, which is really nothing. Just happy to promote this album. Um, and we've said a lot, so I don't feel like there's, there's a lot more to, to, to cover. We think we've had a really productive conversation, really wonderful, wonderful time here. But in terms of rating the track, this is hard because, um, you know, compared to what, you know, mm-hmm. these songs are unlike anything ever. How would you rate them compared to something that's totally different, apples and oranges? But um, if I had to do this, well, first of all, the, the album as a whole, I would give a five or if I could give more than five, I would give it a five plus. But, you know, it's just an amazing uh, musical world, unlike anything out there, just really extraordinary. As far as Bill Corp's, I admit it's not one of my favorite songs on the album. Um, it didn't stick in my mind as much as some of the more, uh, I guess the, the word I'm thinking of is assaultive, the stuff that really grabs you and shakes you up, like Frowland, Dachau Blues, um, the Blimp, uh, Pina, songs that I'm never going to forget. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Bill's Corpse is, is very nice. It does a lot of things well that other songs on this album do. It was also, it was easy to transcribe, which is why I have it in the article. I think in terms of impact, it's a little more subtle. And subtle is not a word I'd often use uh, describing Trotman. <laughs> I think it's a, one of the more subtle songs on the album. So uh, with that in mind, and uh, I, I, I give it, a, I hate to say this, I would probably give it a four. I don't think it's quite as good as some of the other ones. It's still still nice. It's a pretty solid A minus song, but for me, it doesn't really grab me uh, by the shirt and shake me up the way some of these other songs do. I, I think that's fair. I, I think it's it's certainly not as uh, immediately a standout track as say "My Human Gets Me Blues" or "Moonlight on Vermont" or something that just immediately pops out as as one of the one of the the real highlights but it, it's got a lot going on in this tiny little uh, barnes i think just calls it an abrasive fragment um within that little fragment there's there's a, a tremendous amount that's happening right. i was gonna say i think of it maybe as a little a distillation of beefheart's techniques a very small package containing everything he does in the same song that's a very good way of putting it a, a compressed Beefheart track. It's even even shorter. This has got to be one of the shortest songs. I think Dolly's Car is the shortest song on the album, but this has got to be close. It's it's very very compact. Uh, so if you would like to follow track by track on Twitter, we are at underscore track by track. If you'd like to follow me on Twitter for some reason, I am at Joel A Bacher. That's B as in boy, A K K E R. Same on Instagram. And uh, Dr. Silberman, thank you again so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Joel. It's been great talking to you. Thanks for having me. And thank you all for listening. On the farm a heap. Oh, lady, look up in time. Oh, lady, look out of love. And you should have us all. Oh, you should have us fall.